Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Sky Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem AMA, the fun size show where you can ask me anything. Producer Joe Russo, this is a special show today. It is a special show because we are continuing Mick Garris Appreciation Month oh, uh, <laughs> by celebrating the 30th anniversary of your first Stephen King collaboration. Sleepwalkers. Stephen King's Sleepwalkers is 30 years old, and that's really hard to believe. Because aren't <laughs> I only 33 or something? Yeah, I don't know. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh it's a, it is an a it is a milestone. And uh and that being said, we went to our fans and they gave us lots of great questions. Uh, and we're gonna do it in a similar format to what we just did with the shining. So we're gonna kind of just walk through the process of making the movie chronologically and i'll ask some of the fans questions as we go and, okay great uh, it was really great way to revisit the shining for me that was a lot of fun yeah yeah no it was we got some wonderful feedback on that episode and, and i'm really glad people enjoyed it so we're going to try to do it again uh so are oh, you are you ready is good yeah are you ready to go back into the way back machine let's do it all right so let's start with uh where you kind of were at right before this all went down. You had Critters 2 and Psycho 4 under your belt. Right. What's life like for Mick Garris in the early 1990s? Were you developing original projects? Were you pitching out open directing assignments? What was I was doing in your career? I was doing screenwriting work for various studios. Um, And yes, I had now directed two movies. So that put me into a new world beyond the screenwriting world and beyond the television world, even though Psycho 4 was officially a TV movie for Showtime, it was theatrical overseas. So I was getting various things sent to me. And one of the queries came from Columbia Studios. They had Stephen King's Sleepwalkers, his first original screenplay not based on any Uh, IP, any uh, previously written stories or novels or anything like that. This was an original screenplay. That's right. If you're going to go look for the book, you're never going to find it. Exactly. (laughs) So uh, they talked to my agent and they set up a a meeting with me and the meeting went great. Uh, They were looking for a writer director. So there was somebody that they could have on board who could help King Um, and the studio kind of liaise between the studio and King in any uh, necessary revisions that they felt were required for the script before it uh, got into production. So we had this great first meeting. They said, you know, you've got this job. Tomorrow we have to meet with another director who we have a really close relationship with his agent. So it's just a meeting we have to do. And so tomorrow they had that meeting with that director and they gave him the job so you gotta love hollywood yeah so they gave him the job and i went on to greener pastures and uh then after a couple months later uh, i got a call that they wanted to have another meeting with me and i went to lunch with the production executive teddy z and uh and with uh dick stenta the line producer on the film And it was a very odd 
lunch, they told me that the previous director was rewriting the script and taking it far away from Stephen King's script. So there's no way they'd be able to call it Stephen King's Sleepwalkers in the title. And he had created a planet of sleepwalkers and all kinds of things that had nothing to do with what, what King had done. Right. And so we're talking and then it, it was at a lunch meeting. And as we finish lunch, uh, Dick Stenta, the line producer says, here, let's take you to your office. And it's like, oh, <laughs> You're like, I had no idea here. they were. Yeah. yeah. I had no idea they were hiring me and I started work that day. Well, so, all right. I want to dig into a, a couple little things here and there. Um, the first meeting before, before they hired the other guy, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, had you, did you read the script, uh, before going into that meeting? Oh, of course. Yeah. And, and I'm curious. And as was our, uh, friend of the podcast and director himself, Dave Parker asked, uh, oh, yeah. Did they did they warn you about some of the subject matter before you read it, or did you just read it clean? They did not warn me about it, <laughs> but I read it clean. You know, I knew Stephen King's work really well. Right. And right. I had just a year or two before made Psycho 4, which is one of the reasons I believe I was hired to do this movie. Right. Uh, you know, dealing with incest and, and mother-son <laughs> relations. Um, you were so, the natural fit. <laughs> yeah, don't tell my mom. Good thing she's no longer with me. But um, so it worked out that way. Uh, but King had director approval. Right. So they had sent him Psycho 4 and this other director had made a highly regarded television movie. Mm. And he saw both of those. And then he went, wow. I had no idea. I did not expect Psycho 4 to be any good. And he really liked Psycho 4. And yeah. thematically, it just so happened to dovetail perfectly oh. with, with Sleepwalkers. So I didn't know anything about it till I'd read it. But they knew uh, I was very knowledgeable about King's work, that I'd read everything he'd written. And, yeah. and uh, they, they felt it was a good match, despite up until Psycho 4, everything I'd done had been very family friendly. Emblem-esque. Yeah. Yeah. Very much in the, in the world of Spielberg and Critters 2. And which to be fair, Sleepwalkers does have that kind of Norman Rockwell goes to hell uh, that you, you enjoy so much. That um, is my favorite theme. And I've worked with it several times, but it was, and it is definitely a family film for a very different kind of family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but this was also wasn't your first blush pitching on a Stephen King property because I remember you had told me you read Pet Cemetery a couple of years prior to this too. Yeah, when they made Pet Cemetery, that was my first interview with a major studio regarding directing because I wow. had done amazing stories, but I had not directed anything feature length yet. Right. And the executive um, was somebody I had worked with. She'd been an executive at Avco Embassy when I was doing specialized publicity there on, on The Fog and Escape from New York and The Howling. And she graduated to being an executive at Paramount. So I met with them and that script for Pet Cemetery was a fantastic script. Um, and I was really enthusiastic about it. And King had done the adaptation himself. And if you can right. 
track it down and read it. It's a really good riveting screenplay. And so I had a meeting on it, but I think the fact that I'd never directed a movie before had a lot to do with me not doing it. Plus they got, they got Mary Lambert to do it hot off of doing her Madonna videos. And, oh yeah. And, and she did it. And it's a, it's a bona fide classic in its own right. So yeah. Uh, and history worked out just fine for you with in the King business, but did, but it did, did it kind of put a, maybe a bug in you that like, I want to do a Stephen King movie. Like, was that, was that a goal? Was that an ambition at the time for Mick Garris? It wasn't a goal or an ambition, but who wouldn't jump at the chance to work with Stephen King? And obviously it was my favorite author, uh, especially within the genre uh, and the opportunity to work on that. I thought that was way out of my reach. And the way it got into my reach was that, it was a very low budget studio movie. It was a studio movie, yes, but it was a $15 million movie, which on a studio level is kind of an equivalency to the $4 million critters too in an independent level. And on in today's money would be a very healthy budget for a studio movie. So, uh, you know. Well, a very unhealthy budget for a studio movie. Well, no, 15, I mean, well, 15 yeah. in today's dollars is probably closer to 25 and they just don't make movies in that range anymore. Exactly. Is, I guess is more the, the what I'm saying there. It's like 10 and below and then 100 and above, you know, yeah, or it's like $200,000 or $200 million. And not much <laughs> in between. It's sad, but true. Uh, so so when you went in for that first meeting with them on the project, you read the script. Did you put together a, a pitch? Like, how did you go in? How did you tackle trying to get the job? Well, back in the early 90s, people didn't do pitch decks. They just talked about it. They talked about how they would handle it. Um, what were the important elements to it? Which are the scenes that demanded the most attention? How would you cast it? What were your ideas about pictorializing something that's on the page in a very specific way? Mm. And so... I was able to have a conversation with the creative executives there and, and it went really well. They felt that I understood Stephen King maybe more than they did. And in reality, it's not a maybe, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very good, very collaborative conversation and the meeting was quite collegial and uh, everything went really well. And it, it seemed to be too easy and yeah, indeed, it was for a while. <laughs> it is. It is pretty funny how you can have those meetings with studio execs, and you think they went your way, and then you'll find out a couple of days later. Well, no, maybe not. You know. <laughs> yeah, we hired the other guy. Well, yeah. wait, uh -huh. you, but you said <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tell I, mom. I, yeah. I just, I just went through that on a, a remake property recently myself. So, oh dear, I'm sorry. Oh dear. Oh, you know, that's how it goes, right? So, so maybe, goes. maybe they'll come knocking at my door a few months from now. You never know. That's right. Uh, if they do a planet of whatever it is. And <laughs> yeah, and, and you can probably guess that's a possibility. So, uh, <laughs> all right. The um, but but so 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 they call. So like you said, they called you back in. You met them for lunch. You didn't realize going in, it was an interview, really, right? It was more just you thought you were taking a meeting with them or? I thought I was taking a meeting about sleepwalkers. Yeah. Oh, I, okay. knew, I knew that it uh, that relationship had soured with the other yeah. director. And so I thought it was going to be another tap dance, you know, right. The right. Dance monkey for the executive. <laughs> um, but I had already done that dance and right. they invited me into the finals and uh, 
So. And so really they walked you from, from the Sony commissary to a, a bungalow, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And off <laughs> it on the lot. It was wow. pretty phenomenal. That's, that's incredible. Uh, and so, so you're, you're okay. So you're thrown into the wolves essentially, right? Yeah. You know, you're in, you're in this, this m- machine that's already moving. Uh, what do you do? What's, 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 what do you, what's your first order of business? Well, the first thing you do is, is get together with the line producer, get together with the casting director, talk to Stephen King on the phone. Um, and just, you hit the ground running pre-production yeah. started that day. Wow. So, you know, there are a lot of people involved. We, uh, I didn't bring in many of the keys that was brought together by the studio and by uh, Dick Stenta, who was a very old school screaming type New York producer, uh, <laughs> who, uh, you know, we had our, our differences uh, here and there. I couldn't think of a personality to be better matched with yours. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, I had, but I did bring in Rodney Charters, who was my DP on Psycho 4. And I brought in Nicholas Pike to do the score. And I was able to bring in some key people um, that I gave me comfort to deal with. But I was fortunate in being assigned some really, really terrific crew members uh, to make this movie. And we were making it in town. And in those days, I only worked in L.A. And I yeah. thought, God, it'd be so much fun to go on location someday. And those words came back to haunt me. <laughs> you and you never went back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, but so, okay. So you get the job, you get thrown into the, into the fire. You had your, I imagine this is your first conversation with Stephen King ever, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. It was the very first time was on the phone. And then there were issues where the studio had some thoughts about notes and I would call him and say, here's something they feel needs to be addressed. Do you want me to do it? And he would say, no, give me, give me till tomorrow. And then the next morning I'd come into the studio and in the fax machine, there would be six new pages. What's that- a fax machine? That's- <laughs> I know, I know. Only the fax, man. Yeah. But, uh, and there were these great pages. And, and so the script was the first thing that needed addressing because it had yeah. been dismantled by this previous director. Right. My job was to put the Stephen King back in the script and handle anything, any discrepancies or things that they felt needed adjustment. Pretty was much that, all of the revision. Was that a tap dance you were nervous about considering you knew that the last director went off the rails with them? Like, No, I was confident about it because he had done that. And I really liked what King had done. Right. Right. And, and I felt that even if King didn't want to do the heavy lifting, that I was capable of, of restoring it in the same manner in which it, he had approached it. But most of the revisions he did, um, I wrote the scene with the sleepwalkers in front of the mirror that uh, almost got us uh, an NC-17. Which we're going to talk about. (laughs) Um, And there were a couple of other things, uh, you know, there were, uh, but it was getting the shift in, in the script in shape first and then assembling a great crew. And, you know, once your feet hit the concrete, it's a sprint all the way until you finish shooting. So there's so much work to do in pre-production that you barely notice when you start production. 
Yeah. Well, which is, which is a great way to kind of segue into some, some pre-production questions. Uh, one, one thing I'm curious about, uh, you know, cause obviously it was, we said it was already moving when you got hired, but you said in the past that the Columbia studio had, I think it was Frank Price. Frank Price was the head Frank of the Price, studio at the time. He said he didn't want to make a movie that involved incest and then he was out <laughs> yeah, what he said was, as long as I'm head of this studio, we're not making a movie where a mother has sex with her son. <laughs> so halfway into production, he was proven right when Mark Canton came in and replaced him. Yeah, Mark didn't have nearly the same scruples. No, I'm kidding. Mark, uh, <laughs> Mark was one of the producers on Nightmare Cinema and was a really great partner on that project. He what he was, and Mark was was a little bit of a maverick. He was a little bit more of a risk taker, definitely. Uh, but so so, but when did Frank like when so when in the production process did that happen? Like, was he hoping that Stephen King would just change his mind as you would get closer and closer and closer to shooting, or like when? How how long did that shadow last over the project? We were shooting when it happened, so wow. we were facing the very real possibility that we might have to cut around that sequence. Oh my gosh. At it. And that was obviously a central element of the story. And to only describe it and not show it and not have it take place would have been incredibly cheesy and, and quite a cheat. Um, and so, uh, you know, we just went along as if we were going to make the movie our way. We had the 800 pound gorilla of Stephen King on mm. our side. So um, nobody expected Frank Price to get the boot, but um, when he did, there was a collective sigh of relief, as you <laughs> might imagine. <laughs> I yes, I can't imagine. That's that's pretty. That's pretty amazing. That's that is fate stepping in. It uh, did indeed. Yeah. 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 Um, On furry little paws. Yeah. <laughs> what one last kind of I guess screenplay question. Uh, so the Sleepwalkers mythology, it's it's interesting. It's kind of vampire-like. Right. Um, and, and there's, but there's definitely have powers beyond what we know vampires to have. How did you and King kind of hammer down what they could do, what they couldn't do? Well, it was never explained. And the events of the script took place and you saw how one would suck the life of a virgin and transfer it to the mother character. Right. So because it was so obtuse about that intentionally, I came up with the idea of doing the credit sequence the way we did, showing it going back to ancient Egypt and these artifacts and, and hieroglyphics and, and all of that. But I also invented the Chillicothe Encyclopedia of Arcane Knowledge. Uh, <laughs> I made that up. And yeah. people think it's a real book because it's like 1861 or something. It's, so it's, you know, it, it's <laughs> quote, describing what sleepwalkers were in mythology. And that's all bullshit that I made up. But it does, it's bullshit that adds a lot of context. And a lot, I think, I think as a viewer, some needed context. Yeah, it, it was needed, which is why I put it into the title sequence. So you weren't going in there completely bare-fisted yeah and i also think you by by tying them to ancient egypt you you gave it a really interesting backstory you know oh yeah the cat uh, and and egyptian mythology there's a lot of it there yeah 
Uh, so David writes, there are strong echoes of themes from Beowulf and other classics in this movie, Grendel and his mother, for example. Do you think Stephen developed this film with those classics in mind? You know, we never talked about anything nearly so highfalutin. Yeah. So, uh, it may well be that that inspired him, but what I think was he wanted to do an original story directly for the screen and that was kind of transgressive. Mm -hmm. He wanted to do something that hadn't been done before. And to this day, there are not many movies like Sleepwalkers. No, it is. It is wholly unto itself uh, <laughs> in all the best ways. Um, well, hopefully so. I am sure in ways that other people would not. Hey, 30 years later, people love it. It is, it is for sure a cult favorite. So, um, all right, let's talk casting. Uh, it's always a puzzle. Um, and obviously, Brian Krauss has the challenge of not only having chemistry with Machen Emick, but also Alice Krieger. Right. So who do you cast first? Well, the most important person to cast was Alice because the world revolved around her. Um, and so we had met with a lot of people from Mimi Rogers to Celia Ward to a, a number of really fine actresses um, for that part. I had but heard I, rumor, uh, Julia Roberts. Is that is that is there any context to that? Well, there may be context to it, but there's no truth to it whatsoever. <laughs> okay. No one ever mentioned Julia Roberts as playing the mother in Sleepwalkers. <laughs> <laughs> would have been weird. Uh, uh, what, he was, been what weird. 22 years old at the time? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm just reading what's on I'm IMDb. All right. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, don't believe everything you read, but that's true. I think we might stamp out another IMDb legend too later. But uh, we'll get into it. Uh, so, so, Al so, so, yeah. So, casting Alice Krieger. So was Alice had made a huge impression on me in Ghost Story. Right. She was so beautiful and alluring, and and also a level of intelligence that she brings to everything she does. Um, and she was obviously comfortable with nudity, which there wasn't much of, but did come into play. But there's also a strangeness about her. Her eyes are mysterious and mystical and captivating. And this inherent oddness that she's an incredibly sweet lady. And, and yes, yeah, she is. We've had her on the show. Yeah. I mean, she's so talented and terrific and, and all, but there is definitely a very mysterious quality to her. And the idea of this feline creature, she was so good at being in touch with her inner cat um, that it became pretty clear early on that she was the odds on favorite. We met with people, we read other people, including Bo Derek, by the way. Um, oh, interesting. So that was a meeting, not a reading, uh, but... Huh. Yeah, her agent was kind of a, a, a legend in, in the agency business. He was like 90 years old at the time and, and <laughs> brought her in. And that, that was an amazing meeting with Bo Derek. Oh my gosh, I bet. <laughs> but yeah, but Alice, really, there's such a sense of refinement and you believe that she's been on the planet for a thousand years, you know, constantly evolving and, and her knowledge and, and sense of intelligence and and worldview was so strong in her. And there's this erotic quality that she had to have in, in, in making that character 
sexual without it being salacious. Yeah. And I think, I think you guys walked that line. Uh, yeah. yeah. Tell me, well, tell me about casting Mitch and Brian. Okay. Brian, they, they suggested the studio suggested Brian because he had made return to the blue lagoon and was one of the last people who was put under contract to a studio. Oh, he wow. was under a studio contract with Columbia. And so this helped pay off that contract, but he was also the right guy. I found that, especially at that time, much more difficult to cast young men than young women. It seemed like, especially then, young guys were in it to get laid and ah. young, young women were in it in in it more for the artistry of it, for the acting chops and all of that. Yeah. So we went through meeting a lot of young men and Brian really was, was gung ho and he was really into it. And Machen, of course, her, her major claim to fame at that time was Twin Peaks. Right. And I had only seen Twin Peaks a couple of times, so I had not be, been as familiar with her work. But once we met her, once she met with Brian, we had them together. There was obviously really great chemistry with them. They were both incredibly good people to work with, as was Alice, really collaborative, really up for everything. Um, and so that, that triumvirate really worked out well. Is it true that both Machen and you are allergic to cats? Well, I am, uh, or <laughs> I was. Uh, I, I think you're right. I think Machen is also. Um, I've gotten over it over the years. Yeah. But at that time, yeah, I was still allergic to cats. Oh, my gosh. How hard, how hard was that to deal with during production? Not very. Um, you yeah. know, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be bad. I would actually hold... Uh, Sparks, the cat who played Clovis and uh, without any problems, um, an amazing cat. And I know there's a question about that. Um, oh, of course there are. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, most of the cat work was not face to face. A lot of it was second unit where we had 126 cats who were right. Uh, and I wasn't cuddling with them or holding them. In my <laughs> and really. Fair enough. Machen only did at the ending of the movie. That's so. right. That's right. And what, what, did you did you load her up with, uh, you know, Benadryl or like <laughs> how did she get through? She didn't it? tell me. She never told me until well after the fact that she was allergic to cats. You know what's funny is um, I had I had a similar exchange with uh, the lead of of the au pair. She didn't know how to swim, and she didn't tell me until the day we had to put her in a pool. Uh, Great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Um, funny how they'll do that when they need a role. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I can yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, I can hold a cat. Sure. I'm good at uh, riding horses. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right, let's run through some of the other uh, uh, actors in the movie because there are some really memorable uh, people who pop up. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to the cameos in a bit, but let's let's just talk about some of the cast. Uh, tell me about casting Mark Hamill. Well, that was the the opening scene and the ending scene in the movie are reshoots. So they were not originally part of the production schedule. So that was done after the fact. I knew Mark from when I was doing Star Wars uh, reception work. Wow. So we, we were friendly at that time. And I just wondered, I wonder if we could get Mark to do this. And I called him up 
Yeah. And I asked if he'd be interested. And he said, that sounds like a lot of fun. So he was there for uh, two days, I think. Tell me about the mustache. The mustache was his idea. <laughs> and I've had that before, uh, not before this show, but uh, on the judge, Chris Noth, who is famously uh, clean-faced, uh, insisted on a mustache for his part. But because Mark Hamill was doing it uncredited, he, th he wanted to, to wear the mustache just to change his appearance because it didn't rely on him being the star of the movie. It was just a, a surprise treat for the fans, and it wow. was fun for him to do. And, uh, and I, I'm forever grateful that he agreed to be a part of it. Yeah. It, is, it is a really fun way to open the movie for sure. Yeah. Uh, how about Lyman Ward and Cindy Pickett? Well, once we had one, we knew we wanted the other because they were, they were married at the time, right? Yeah. They were married at the time. They were Ferris Bueller's parents. Yep. And they, they made a good team and they really fit that that mom and dad in Norman Rockwell's middle America, yeah. uh, just uh, really sweet and loving and, and suburban and all of that. And at the time, Cindy was, was pregnant with their child. Oh, wow. Uh, so when she goes through that glass window, <laughs> that was a stunt person. <laughs> it was indeed. And it actually bothered Cindy a bit because the way she went through the window, her legs are splayed open and she's oh, on her Great. This is what I've got to end up doing. Uh, <laughs> My position. Thanks a lot. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, Lyman Ward says probably one of my favorite lines in like any movie ever, which is in planes, trains, and automobiles. When he like wiggles his eyebrows at Steve Martin, he's like, you'll never make the six. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I forgot all about him being in there. Got a nice little role in that too. Yeah. Um, tell me about uh, Glenn Shadix. Glenn Shaddix, of course, was in Beetlejuice. Yep. Um, he was terrific, really great to work with. You know, you try and fill, fill the roles with colorful players. Um, when you've got smaller parts, you want them all to mean something and you want yep. them all to pop and you yep. want them all to be portrayed by somebody who doesn't look like everybody else in the show. Yeah. So there was a little bit of, you know, because of his homosexuality, he was a little nervous about the implications of how the teacher was played as kind of predatory and the like, and he wanted to make sure. So we talked through a lot of that stuff um, to make sure he was comfortable with, with all of that. Um, and so he was and was incredibly incredibly cooperative and funny you know when he loses his hand and is chased yeah. i'm sorry <laughs> running <Yeah. laughs> it's pretty great <laughs> there was a, a scene where he was in his body was in the tree and the rope broke and he actually fell he didn't hurt himself but he could have and it was you know, it's oh one of those gosh. things where whenever you're doing a stunt, my my heart is always in my throat until I'm positive we've got it and it's done. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those things that could have gone so wrong, but oh. thank goodness he was just fine. Thank God he didn't, and he was he's so memorable in the movie and and such and so much fun coming right off of Beetlejuice too. So. Yeah, yeah, um, it was really great. I mean, that the whole impetus was having just seen him in Beetlejuice. Yeah, yeah. Dan Martin. Ah. Uh, the great Dan Martin, again, a wonderful actor. Uh, 
And I've used him, I think, four times now, most recently in Nightmare Cinema as the doctor. He's great in that, too. Just wonderful. There's just this kind of real feeling to him. You, You get a sense that he's this character before the movie started and after it ends. You know, he... He has a sense of veracity. He plays everything so real um, and he's so likable and singing the song to, uh, you know, here comes Johnny with his pecker in his hand, all that stuff. <laughs> well, that, I had a, Rebecca had a question about that, which was, did he come up with those or were those in the script? Actually, it was written in the script and I didn't know, but it was a country Western hit. It was a real song. And I thought King had just made it up, you know, and doing his. uh, (laughs) But my my brother Donald had said, oh, no, I know what that is. And he got the song so we could get all the lyrics and everything. But uh, so the unlikelihood of this terrific African-American lawman in middle America singing this country Western goober song, you know, Uh yeah. was just so much fun and he just did such a great job and he got along so well with sparks the cat you know get the bad guy get the bad guy guy, clovis (laughs) that you can even hear in the police station he goes over to pet clovis because he talks about clovis being able to see the sleepwalkers when he couldn't and you hear Clovis purring. That's the real Clovis purr. We didn't dub that in. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's really cool. All right. Last but not least, Ron Perlman. Yeah. (laughs) Ron was great. I've been a fan of his since I uh, saw Quest for Fire, which he was incredible in. And of course he had done Beauty and the Beast for a long time. And, uh, but he's a great guy, a great actor. And again, nobody looks like Ron Perlman. Yeah, it's true. Don't expect that he's also really funny. And he he was able to bring this character into a bigger than life frame. Um, and obviously we had fun together because we worked on Desperation. We did Masters of Horror. And he's a, another guy that you want to be one of your regulars if you can get him. Yeah. And uh, and and a great regular to have in your uh, your stable. Um, yeah. So so the, you mentioned already that the uh, the cold open was a reshoot. What what was the uh, what was the impetus for reshooting the Bodega Bay sequence? Well, to add that sequence because it started originally with the cats outside the house and then cutting inside, literally cutting inside when Brian Krause is carving Tanya's initial into his arm. That was originally the opening of the movie. And uh, the studio felt that it needed to have a sense of mystery set up before that, that had to do something shocking. And King came up with the idea of all of these hanging cats hanging from the trees. And, uh, and since we were doing that, um, actually, no, we were, they wanted a stronger ending than what had been done. Every, it ended with everything that happened in the house before everything happens outside with the, the picket fence and the car not working and all the sleepwalker mom bursting into flames. None of that was in it. And they, oh, wow. they wanted a new ending. And I said, look, if we're going to do a new ending, would you let me add something to the beginning? Because I feel like it's missing something. Yeah. I suggested this scene and King wrote this scene. 
And uh, so uh, that was how that came to be and, and then getting Mark Hamill for that. That's it's pretty cool. And I assume that was shot in the Malibu-ish area. <laughs> it was definitely shot in the Malibu-ish area. Yeah. And of course, Bodega Bay is the location of the birds. That's right. That King is right. had written that into it as a little tribute to Hitchcock. That is a pretty fun little tribute. And then, of course, uh, we went cross country to Travis, Indiana, which was basically the other side of Los Angeles. Uh, yes. And of course, <laughs> Indiana doesn't have those, the hills of uh, California. Yeah, the, the, the mountains of the flat Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know what? But if you don't know, it works. Yeah. So, and it's Travis, Indiana. That's in the very rare hilly area of Indiana. That's right. That's right. Of course. Uh, Jamie asks, uh, this is a good question because it's so central to the movie. If the rights to the song Sleepwalk had not been available, was there an alternate music piece on hold that had been cleared? Um, there wasn't an alternate music piece, but Santo and Johnny could not have been happier than to have their song uh, be represented by Sleepwalkers and the title based on their song. And yeah. it's such a it's such a haunting instrumental that they came up with this guitar duo. Yeah, uh, they were thrilled. I've never met them, but uh, all, all all intelligence was that they were thrilled to have their song be revived again and put back into the public consciousness because it had been done i think in the late 50s or early 60s and uh um so it worked so well both as far as the title goes but also just the the track itself is so perfect for putting us ill at ease in that scene yes. where we meet the handsome jockish looking character uh of charles brady and then he's carving Tanya's initial into his bicep. Oh, and well, and let alone meeting his mother shortly thereafter. And all the cats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it is, it's a it's a, a haunting melody and one that I think is uh almost as important as a needle drop we will discuss a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but speaking of needle drops, um, one of my favorite scenes in this movie and in probably any of your movies is Tanya's introduction uh, uh, dancing at the arrow movie theater, uh, which, which, you know, I saw in sleepwalkers before actually gracing the halls of myself, which was pretty cool. <laughs> um, so tell me about it. Walk me through making that scene. And was, do you love me a needle drop that was referenced in the script? How did that come to be? Um, there was no musical number in the script. It was something It was like, you know, let's really have fun with introducing Tanya and the movie theater. We're about to have them meet each other in a meet cute with spilled popcorn. Yep. But um, I just had the idea that she's got a Walkman clipped onto her belt as she's doing the, the carpet sweeper. And originally that whole sequence was shot with one Steadicam shot. The, the crane starts on the top of the marquee it comes down, the Steadicam operator steps off of the crane and wow. into the theater and then finds Tanya and then dances with her. And then we decided, you know, to really amplify the, the fun that she's having to cut some coverage into it as well. But it was kind of one of the first musical numbers I'd ever done. And it was simple, but sweet and effective. And, and then it leads to the, the jolt of her beating, uh, of her meeting uh, Brian. 
which which is uh which is a good jump scare in and of itself the the so when you you did it as one take did you shoot the coverage then and there or was that something you found in the edit like kind of cutting up the no i i decided you know this is a little chancy we'd better shoot the coverage uh just in case as i did at the end of shooting the scene uh in front of the mirror Right, and which was uh, smart, smart instincts in both cases. Uh, and and was she actually dancing to "Do You Love Me" in the earphones, or, or yep, that was. Uh, it was of... not in the earphones. We were playing it back because there's no dialogue in the scene. Right, right. Until it ends. Got it. So it wasn't. It wasn't a needle dropped out in post. It was planned for that. Did she? Did yeah, she? She was dancing too. Yeah, that's great. Did she prep the dance with anyone, or was that something she came up with on her own? Um, well, she had, she knew what I was planning on doing, but we yeah. had not rehearsed it until we got to the set that day. Right. So she's a great dancer. Yeah. So uh, I had no qualms about just uh, her vamping it. Nice. That's great. That's really cool. Um, but it wasn't all location work on this movie. Uh, you shot several scenes on the studio lot. Yeah. Well, the in- interiors of the Brady house and some of the exterior where the car crashes through the wall um, and uh, various other things were, were shot on the soundstage, but primarily the Brady house. Well, tell me about uh, some of your neighbors on the soundstage. Oh, well, there were three <laughs> feature films being shot at the same time. Yeah. Hook by Steven Spielberg, Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Coppola, and Stephen King's Sleepwalkers by Mick Garris. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? Yeah, I mean, a couple of the gods and then a gremlin. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but but I mean, what great company to be in. And uh, speaking of of having that neighbor, someone popped by at one point, right? Yeah, I was shooting the dancing scene where Charles is kind of reanimated from his death throes to dance with Tanya. And Steven Spielberg came over from his set and he uh, just wanted to watch. And I said, uh, did you want to talk or something? No, no, I just want to watch. And, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so it was, it was a little unnerving, but I knew I had my job to do. And we were shooting at some pretty pretty interesting little techniques and the like, like I had put um, both the monster sleepwalker uh, on the dolly with the camera. So the moves were happening with the character and the same thing with Tanya as they're both looking into the camera lens and doing some, some fun little cinematic tricks and, and transformation stuff was going on and all of that and Stephen was just watching quietly and uh, can we get you something no no i just want to watch and he hung out for like two hours while we're doing this stuff and so later on i found out that um well when the film was finished and we'll get into that later too uh he asked me to bring it over to his house and show it to him and what i found out was that he was going to offer me Plastic Man to direct, which never got made. And, you know, he did ask me to do it. And then the film never happened. So, uh, oh, well. Well, (laughs) so he was he was he was scouting. And also he just I think he just loves being around movies being made. You know, he was also proud that he was the guy who launched my career. He gave me. Yeah. And now he's watching you direct on a studio lot. So. Yeah, next to his stage. And it Pretty was cool. 
it was pretty great. And, and he really was, it just gave me a lot of, of uh, confidence. And, and he was really proud to see me doing that work and made it clear that he felt personal about it. Well, one last Spielberg question. William asks, is it true that Steven Spielberg helped set up a shot in the movie? No. No. All right. There you <laughs> no, go. No. That, that puts that, that down. Another rumor squashed. <laughs> yeah, I wish he had. I would have used it. <laughs> well, one of the uh, most famous sequences in the movie is obviously the car chase with Brian Krause and Dan Martin. Yeah. Uh, and it's awesome. Uh, so, and as far as I know, that was probably like your first big car chase that you directed. Yeah, wow. well, interestingly, we had one of the great second unit directors on board, Mickey Moore, who did all of the Indiana Jones movies. Oh, wow. But he had a heart attack. Oh, wow. <laughs> before he started shooting. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And so um, Bert Dunk, his director of photography, did a lot of the chase scene. And I realized this isn't really working with the energy of it. And so I personally, I'm not an action director. I'm not a second unit director, but I ended up reshooting most of the chase scene myself, which is not to pat myself on the back, but it needed to be done. And, and it was earn while you learn doing second unit because, you know, mounting, you learn that if you put something between you and the car, like fences going by or something, it seems faster. You use a wide lens down on the wheel lock to the, to the car. Um, you know, you really get a sense of speed and, and uh, anxiety and yeah. just ways to use those lenses and, and camera positions and all of the movement and everything to, to give it a real sense of, uh, of, of purpose and, and, and propulsion. Yeah. When, when did you know that the footage you were getting from the second unit wasn't up to your snuff? Like when, up like to Mickey Moore's stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. We started getting stuff and it just was a little on the bland side. You know, Bert is yeah. a DP or right. YP, not a second unit director, but he, a talented right. guy and working with Mickey, you can't help but learn from the best. Sure. But um, the stuff just didn't feel like it had any speed to it. And I, I started realizing things like, you know, put the camera on a dolly between the highway and the, the white picket fence. And when you pass those slats of the fence, you're going to feel super fast. Yeah. The, the speed of the of the motion amplified and things like that and and i wanted to really use wide lenses on facing the cars and mounts on the cars and things like that 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 seemed to amplify the energy that we were going for plus getting uh, a piece of original music from nicholas pike with screaming guitars and yeah it really helped a lot it's a super fun sequence what did you think when you saw the Pontiac Firebird Trans Am show up in the new iteration of it all those years later? It's pretty great. I mean, when we had bows to our shining in Dr. Sleep and yep. having iconic uh, iconography from Sleepwalkers show up in it, whenever somebody taps you on the shoulder with something you've done in the past, you know, it's, it's, an honor and lots of fun. 
<laughs> I thought it was very cool myself when I saw it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the other big thing that happens in the car chase, obviously, is we see the first Sleepwalkers transformation. Right. Uh, so at the time, that kind of metamorphosis technology was pretty pretty cutting edge stuff. We were the second morph movie after uh, Terminator 2 with Water Weenie. Um, so it was still brand new. Uh, we used a company called PDI. Mm-hmm. And they had done the black and white video that John Landis did with Michael Jackson with all the right. from person to person. So they were great. All of us were learning about it. Plus, in those days, they were still doing motion control. Motion control is the most tedious, time consuming, hideous thing. It's what you have to do is set up your tracks and your dollies and figure out your moves. And you make a move and it's programmed into the computer, a dolly move. And then you repeat the move with that same program thing and just setting it up and locking the track into place. If they give you a time of two hours, double it and then quadruple it again. <laughs> that much longer. So, you know, we have a, a morph that takes place on a camera push in just took hours and hours and hours. But that scene in, in the car, um, well, Jeff Oaken was our, visual effects uh, supervisor and a really came, great came to the rescue in uh, nightmare cinema too it indeed uh, and just a great guy and a great artist and really knows how to how to make it happen and he's done huge movies and he's helped us on smaller things but um so we were still figuring out what you could do with it and yeah. it, it looks kind of cheesy now in the in the car scene because it goes through rubber face to little boy face and all. It, but at the time in 1992, in the theater, when that happened, nobody had ever seen anything like that before. And it was people Shocking. were laughing, I mean, yeah. but they were laughing with joy. Right. This outrageousness and these faces we just kind of randomly threw together and the the little, cute little blonde boy is jeff oaken's baby boy at the time oh is that true oh that's so yeah. funny <laughs> the uh i mean All was it was it a little was a little nerve-wracking like shooting something that you really didn't know how it was going to turn out or like i mean i put my trust in the people yeah, that yeah. i work with and yeah. you know jeff earned my trust early on and we became good friends and the guy is just the best at at what he does um and i saw what they were doing you know they yeah. were showing me sample reels of what you could do okay with computer generated imagery and yeah. the whole idea of morphing it may have been brand new but it had already been vetted out on right these other and and the michael jackson video yeah. right 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 well yeah. since we're talking about uh shape shifting and monsters and such let's talk about the practical flex makeup yeah uh, that was tony gardner right it was tony gardner tony and i had worked together on psycho four before that and tony had been part of rick baker's thriller crew and that's where i met him uh oh. that i i met all of the makeup effects guys at the time when we were working on thriller so Tony had his crew, um, you know, the designs, we went through lots of designs and maquettes and sculptings and all these things until we, we agreed on that. Now, to me, there's one shortcoming and it's the size of the heads. And the reason is 
they had to put mechanics in there to be able to make the facial moves, to make the eyebrows, the eyes, right. and all the ears work, facial movement, because that was something we weren't ready to use uh, CGI effects to make that happen. That right. was, it would have been, every shot would have been outrageously expensive if we could even figure out how to do it. But, um, but yeah, so we had actors in those suits, not the, you know, Brian had a partial makeup done to him, but actually when it's the, the Brian sleepwalker being chased, uh, chasing Glenn Shaddix through the woods and the, the brook there, it's really Noon Orsati Jr., the makeup of, or, or the uh, stunt supervisor's son, Noon oh. Orsati, um, who looked close enough that if you put the uh, partial face prosthetic on him, we'd get away with that being Brian. But it wasn't Brian. Brian morphed into Noon. So, tricks of the trade. Yeah. All right. Uh, Clovis the Attack Cat. <laughs> Good old Clovis. He's a, he's a fan favorite. Lots of people want to know how, what was it like working with him? What was it like working with 126 cats? Is that what you said? Uh, 26, yeah. And, and how Patrick specifically wants to know how did you get them so close to those bear traps and make it so realistic? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, Clovis was nine cats. We'd cast nine cats, you know, one to be a hissing mean Clovis, one to be cuddly, one to be, you know, to do all these different specifics. However, yeah. uh, Sparks the cat was in every Clovis shot except two. The two hissing wow. shots were another cat. So there were seven Clovises who never worked, who just oh. <laughs> stayed in their trailer all day watching cartoons. Cat videos, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, that cat was so talented and so well-trained and so good. Um, and as far as the cats in the front yard of the Brady house, first in the nighttime scene where they're on the roof and all over in the beginning of the movie. And then later on when the uh, trap snaps, all of them had little harnesses. They were trained to wear little harnesses that were pinned into the lawn. Wow. So, there's 126 cats who, because of their fur, you can't tell, have a little harness on them. Uh, and, you know, they would be fed between takes and taken care of and all that. But when you see a bear trap snap shut and you hear that loud clank, that sound makes a lot of what's going on in your head. Sure. Um, those were gentle little spring-driven uh, prop traps that could not have hurt anybody. So when that snap happens, it did scare the cat and he jumped, right. but uh, there was, there was no chance it was going to hurt them. Well, there you go. That's, that's how it was done. And you said there was um, a, pr a producer or a second unit director who did a lot of the work with the cats, yeah. if I remember correctly. Dick Stenta, who I mentioned earlier, he did a lot of the second unit work with the cats running through the town and things like that. So otherwise we'd still be shooting. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> that, that was all done on the Warner Brothers lot. And uh, well, part of it was at Sony, but the backlot stuff was on the Warner Brothers lot. And after that movie, 
there are still feral cats who are generations from the original from sleepwalkers sleepwalkers that still they still have all these cats that live under the sets and oh my gosh all over the studio lot so sorry <laughs> <laughs> the, the true legacy of sleepwalkers yeah uh, well, speaking of other things that are that are tough to direct, I mean, love scenes are notoriously kind of awkward and strange and, and yeah. weird, and uh, and you have the added weirdness of the incestual elements to deal with too. How did you walk uh, Brian and Alice through uh, shooting those sequences? Well, I made sure that they were comfortable and felt safe, and that there was nothing I was going to do that they didn't know about. And, you know, they were fully nude when that was shot because it was important to do that. The whole intent was to shoot it in one moving unbroken shot where you start at the mirror and the dresser and you drop down to the floor and you see the puddle of clothing there. You go up the bedpost to see the feet of a couple making love or in this case, just uh, having procreative sex. Um, <laughs> and then move up the length of their bodies and then slowly reveal their real look in the mirror behind them. Right. But because of the movement, because it was a horror film, the ratings board gave it an NC-17. But uh, just to make sure uh, that I was covered, just like in the dance scene, I shot an overhead shot looking down on Alice's face and a tighter shot, two shot of them that we could cut away, but they, uh, the movement of his butt going up and down was way too much for the pearl clutchers at the MPA. <laughs> the, uh, so, so the reveal in the mirror, uh, yeah. how did, how was that shot? Was that, was that, uh, uh, digitally inserted later? What's that? It, it was really fun. I had done this trick on my Freddy's Nightmare episode where there's a woman in front of a mirror seeing her reflection. She drops something, she dips down, she comes back up. And during that dip down, the camera goes down with her. We pulled out the mirror and there was a reverse room on the other side of the wall. Wow. And so we put a character in makeup there who rose up with her. And as the camera rose up, the two of them who look completely different from one another now, it was this great little sleight of hand kind of Houdini trick. <laughs> so in this case, we didn't have to swap anything out because it was all slowly revealed. But as the camera moves into place, on the other side of the wall, we had built a reverse bedroom where everything was the reverse of that. And there's no glass in the mirror. It's just open. Well, there may have been a piece of glass so that we got a little bit of reflection kick. Right. Uh, but there was nothing there, really. There was no mirror there. Right. So it was, it was a, a theatrical sleight of hand trick. That is a very cool trick. And I am really glad I asked that question. Uh, <laughs> all right. I, there is a really yeah, well, weird... to, to just go a little more deeply oh, yeah. into it, the two makeup covered actors who were aping it were watching yeah. a little tv monitor showing them what brian and alice were doing so that they could mirror it perfectly oh that's great oh, that's what a, what a, i mean that that to me is like that shows you all of the different departments working together coming together in one exactly. big shot yeah it's, it's i mean that's it's that's cinema mick yep. <laughs> uh okay 
I just want to put down a weird rumor that's on IMDb. Let's kill it. Let's nip it in the bud. There is no unless truth. it's true. I mean, I don't think there is. Okay. Uh, there is no truth to the fact that Brian and Alice were actually having sex while making this movie. Absolutely not. Yep, that's what I thought. Nope, All right. Nope. Nope. Never <laughs> happened. Good. Okay. I had a feeling. Yeah. Uh, so we, so hopefully that can be so did they IMDb yeah. record. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Uh, all right. One last thing about production. Uh, and it's one of the things that I think actually has been uh, most iconic, most recently turned you into an action figure for. Uh, <laughs> and that is all the cameos in this movie. There are some great cameos in this movie. Yeah. Stephen King, Clive Barker, Toby Hooper, John Landis, Joe Dante, your wife, Cynthia. How yeah. really did you know I'm going to stick all my friends in this movie? And, and what are, what's the conversation like getting them to do it? Well, I knew that King was going to visit the set one day. And I came up with the idea of putting him into it. And I asked him, do you want to write? Uh, actually, no, I think the, uh, the caretaker in the cemetery was in the script. But I thought, I'm going to build this. Clive Barker and I became friends uh, right after he came to LA for the first time. And we were represented by the same agency that represented King, CAA, at that time. And Toby Hooper was a, a really good friend. Um, and Landis and I have been friends since 1976, 77, 77. Um, and, uh, uh, and Joe Dante, of course, I knew from The Howling and, and beyond. And the idea of taking a Stephen King movie and Toby Hooper had made The Mangler by this point, based on a Stephen King story. And Clive wow. Barker's career in this country was made by Stephen King putting a blurb on the books of blood saying, I've seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. Yep. They had never met. So here's an opportunity oh, wow. to get all three of these guys, not only in one scene, but they're in one shot. It's a yeah. moving shot that starts with King. It comes to Barker, it goes to Toby, and then it goes to the car where Machen is a victim of this brutal attack. Well, that shot, you could cut it and lose it and not have any effect on the movie whatsoever. But I knew that the fans would have a great time with it as yeah. I did. Yeah. And in fact, when, when I saw it on opening night at the Chinese theater, a full house of 1,200 people wow. uh, hooting and hollering, uh, when that scene came on, you hear, wait, is that Stephen King? Is that Toby Hooper? Many people said, is that Clive Barker? But uh, a couple of them. Um, and With time, it would come to know. <laughs> exactly. But it was, uh, it was just a little treat for us. And, and asking directors to act in a movie if it's not challenging is always fun because everybody wants to do that and directors don't work together right this is an opportunity to be on the same set with friends and and be able to bring a little camaraderie to it keep the the uh, atmosphere on the set collegial and and enjoyable and you know we're we're all in this like uh, making a party together you know yeah Maybe under the best possible in enthusiastic circumstances. No, it's, it's super fun. And, and both scenes with all the cameos are, 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 are really fun. And they, they help, uh, I think, bolster the legacy of sleepwalkers over these last 30 years. Yeah. Um, so Something had to. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think there's a little bit more than that, but uh, post-production, yeah. uh, this was your second collaboration with Nicholas Pike. It uh, yeah. Tell me about uh, the approach to the score, because, you know, we talked about it is another kind of Norman Rockwell goes to hell story. So how did you and he decide you wanted to differentiate it from what you did before with Critters 2? Well, this was much more mysterious and much less playful than mm-hmm. Critters 2 was, which Critters 2, even though we didn't do trombone jokey comedy music for that, it was still a 40 piece orchestra. This was something that had to convey a sense of dread and a sense of menace and, and a sense of alienness to it, not outer space alien, but otherness. And the whole idea of this being small town, middle America, again, Norman Rockwell goes to hell. There's no greater uh, musical example, a composer who fits that than Aaron Copeland. And so, although he doesn't take any of Copeland's themes, it has a lot of the feeling of Copeland. It, it's, it's orchestral, it's traditional sounding, and yet it's, it, it's in a darker key. It's in a, a minor key. And uh, in this case, we were recording it on the Sony sound, soundstage with a 60 piece orchestra and Nicholas was conducting. And what was great was all of the players, normally they just come in and they play and they get paid and they leave. In this case, all of them are looking at the screen while they're playing this really wonderful music going, what is this movie? (laughs) They're used to doing the standard kind of studio movie thing. And and here's this music that has all of the the cred of, of, of a brilliant composer and the scope and range of a big studio movie, but it's this little Stephen King movie that could. And um, it really enhances the film. It adds weight that it would otherwise not have. A, a musical score is so much more important than people uh, imagine. It, it's a huge part of it, as is the whole sound design, as we've talked about before. And so here's a 60 piece orchestra where all of the uh, musicians within the orchestra were really impressed themselves and happy to be a part of it and and couldn't believe some of the scenes that they were (laughs) accompanying. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of scenes that uh, are are unbelievable, obviously we talked about it already. You had to make some cuts to get it down from an NC-17 to an R, but uh, Gary asks, is there anything that you miss that was cut out? Well, I would love to have had that shot, just one shot without it being interrupted. Right. Although we do get a more intimate look at, at Alice's face during the, the process, which is a, a positive that came out of it. Um, but it went back to the MPAA five times before wow. we got an R rating. Wow. You know, uh, right before the pencil in the ear, when Dan Martin gets gut shot, we had to cut away from the gut shot because you know it had the explosive squibs and you see that in every movie every movie and every action movie whatever but because it was a Stephen King horror movie they had their knives out for us and they're just a, a bunch of things like that I mean the movie is what it is and after 30 years I I don't go back and go gosh I wish we could have had those uh those splats when (laughs) sure sure yeah and 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 in the moment it's it's hard but i think with time it 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 dulls you know 
And um, because I was a, a first time studio filmmaker, um, the studio wouldn't let me go to the MPAA, the studio uh, rep. I couldn't make my case. They were afraid that I might not be articulate or that I might get cool. angry or yeah. be a horror guy, you know? Um, <laughs> so uh, they wouldn't trust me with going there. So they had a studio representative, which may be why every uh, everything- Took so long, yeah. Oh, but, yeah. but th we went back five times and on the fifth time they said, if you don't make it this time, it's an NC-17 and there's nothing you can do about it. Yikes. But we did. Yes. So. Good, good. Well, uh, Charlie writes, what was the story behind using Bodicea by Enya? Uh, it's the perfect track. It is the perfect track and it's not what we were going to originally use. Um, the, uh, the music supervisors at uh, Columbia gave me a big bag of CDs to listen to. And it was, you know, I'd first heard Nirvana there and we were going to use a Nirvana track oh. for the chase scene. Um, but I also knew the guys from Crowded House and they had done the, we had used their song in the stand previous to, well, after this. Yeah, no, and, in, the, uh, in the future. <laughs> yeah, two years later. Yeah. But um, they had a demo that had never been put on one of their albums that would have been a great song for the end of the movie, but the studio didn't want to pay for that. Ah, uh, I have known it. <laughs> so, uh, but I must say that we found the Enya CD and we found that track and uh, Nicholas Brown, our editor, cut it into it and I was immediately convinced because it, it really does have that, that mysterious sense of foreboding and otherworldliness that, that really works perfectly for the movie. Yeah, it's very haunting. And honestly, now that you tell me that it was supposed to be a crowded house track there prior to it, I can see why it spoke to you in a similar way. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it still has that very kind of haunting, uh, melancholy feel, which I think I think worked worked perfectly for for what what it needed to do. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it really it really became iconic for both the song and the film just like don't fear the reaper it's hard to hear that without thinking of the stand it's hard to hear bodiceo without thinking of sleepwalkers absolutely all right brain mutant writes <laughs> was, was there ever any plans for a prequel or sequel it feels like there's still so much potential to explore nobody talked about it at the time a couple of years later uh, king's wife tabitha wrote a treatment uh, for a sequel that I never read, but it did deal with um, a woman's basketball team. So I don't know where that went, um, but nothing ever came of that. But that was Tabby's idea. And uh, I, I would love to see what that would have been. Digging through the, uh, the Wikipedia page, I also found uh, a, a talk of from our podcast we were quoted on our podcast and i'm quoting the wikipedia page about a quote from our podcast uh where we talked about a meeting we had in gosh it was probably 2019 at this point uh with with a a, a production company about doing a, a tv series spinoff yeah. uh and, and the funniest thing was and i was like god this does sound like me it was like 
was like Joe producer Joe Russo said uh, it was flirting and that's all it ever was was just flirting and I was like that does that does sound like something I would say <laughs> flirting uh, with disaster yeah yeah no it's it's it, but you know you never know when something can bubble up but I, I really truly I think the reason it didn't it wasn't it wasn't a lack of interest on their part or our part to try and find a way to do more sleepwalkers it's the rights are pretty messy the uh, rights are incredibly complicated you know there were um independent movie makers uh who were involved one of whom went to prison for a while on a tax fraud scheme oh. after, well after this happened um you know the the rights were complicated because it was made independently but in conjunction with Columbia. So Columbia partnered with them. They didn't just pick it up, but they partnered with them. So, so the rights issue is incredibly complicated. And I assume that that could be worked out, but who knows? Yeah, it was, it was, I think it was a little bit more uh, ambitious than, than the production company had initially <laughs> hoped it would be. Sure, yeah. But uh, yeah. So finally, last and certainly, but not least, Casey asks, how have you seen fans' perception of the film change over the past 30 years? Well, like a lot of the things I've done that didn't do well originally, the, it seems to have grown on people. However, this one, uh, I need to remind myself that this was the number one movie the week that it came out. Incredible. Uh, so Sleepwalkers was, you know, the the mother and son sex cat monsters um, was the number one movie in America. <laughs> and because it had Stephen King's name in the title, they had to say directed by Mick Garris in all of the advertising. So for one week, uh, NRG, the research national research group, said that I was the most famous director in America for one week because wow. all of the ads said, Stephen King's Sleepwalkers, directed by Mick Garris. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 30 years old now and it keeps playing. Uh, in two weeks, I'm going to Kansas City to do a 30-year anniversary screening there. Um, it plays in festivals all the time. Uh, the stars are always told how it's one of their favorite things they've ever done. Machen and Brian and Alice have all said that if they were to go to a festival or a convention or something, everybody wants to talk about Sleepwalkers. Yeah. And it's such an odd film that it really has kind of kept its sense of notoriety, which is kind of nice. Um, but it, it has a staying power that... You know, it's got the special edition from Scream Factory and, and yep. you know, the uh, people take it to heart. But that's one of the great things about horror fans is they want to own their movies. They want to feel like they're a part of it. And, you know, uh, it's a personal thing uh, that no other genre seems to have. Uh, the horror fans really are bonded together in owning and trading and, and finding the best editions of all of these movies and the like. And it's, it's a really special place to be. And I hope that uh, this podcast, this 30th anniversary Sleepwalkers Ask Mick Anything is just one of those things that fans can own even more about a very special movie <laughs> by a very special guy. So well, thank you everybody. And thank you, Joe, for uh, ring mastering this whole conversation. It was my pleasure, Mick.
And uh, we will be back with uh, some normal AMAs very soon. Uh, we might do some more special ones down the road. But uh, for future, you can send your questions to Mick at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram, or you can send them to me at Joe Russo tweets or at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram, respectively. And it would be really helpful if you are enjoying the show that you rate and review Postmortem with Mick Garris on Apple Podcasts or wherever you uh, consume your podcasts. All right, Mick, thank you so much and happy 30th anniversary to Sleepwalkers. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.